Check your trim set. Check your heading north. Light heading is 074. Check your altimeter set. 2946. Corrected center point elevation. Zero feet. Check your barrel and zero. Check your SS 1230 3034. Check your field. Check your speed up. Lights out. Welcome to the Renegade Aviator Radio Show with David Costa. Bob! gentlemen, David Costa, the renegade aviator. What really brought down the Boeing 737 MAX? That's how I'm starting the show. This is an article by William L. I can't pronounce his last name of the New York Times Magazine. He wrote an article here published September 18th, 2019. And I'm going to try to get through the 21 pages that printed out on my printer So I can give you some of his information, which overall is pretty good. It's a pretty good narrative of this whole thing. And um, this is what I do, aside from a lot of other things I do, is I'm a pilot expert. So I testify in litigation and aircraft crashes on one thing and one thing only, pilot actions. So I don't profess to be a maintenance expert, an engineering expert, or anything like that. But I am an expert on pilot actions. I won't have time to go into detail here, but why am I doing this? Number one, you, if you've never flown an airplane, some of this may be a little bit technical. I'm going to try to cut out most of the technical stuff. It's good for you to listen to. The traveling public should hear this. You as pilots, as aviators, better damn well listen to this. And one of the other things I do is I coach pilots, not flight instruction, coaching. If you want elite level performance, you need to have a coach. If you don't have a coach, I guarantee you that your performance is not where it needs to be. Anyway, limited time. I'm going to rock and roll in here. My phone number, 888-366-5256. Give me a call. Love your comments, your questions, and we'll give you a free sticker when you call as always. So here we go. What really brought down Boeing 737 MAX? The subtitle, Malfunctions Caused Two Deadly Crashes. But an industry that puts unprepared pilots in the cockpit is just as guilty. And I'm going to turn that damn thing around for you right off the bat. You pilots, if you're unprepared, get your rear ends out of the airplane. But I digress. I don't want to get, this is a happy show. This is a happy show. Not for Dave to get angry. Here we go. October the 29th, 2018, Lion Air Flight 610 in Jakarta, Indonesia, 189 people on board. The airplane was the latest version of the Boeing 737, a brand new 737 MAX that was delivered three months before. The captain, 31-year-old Indian, named, I can't pronounce it, who cares, did his initial flight training in a small, now defunct San Carlos, California school I don't know what that has to do with anything. And he opted for an entry-level job with Lion Air in 2011. It goes on to say here, it's the airline is known for hiring inexperienced pilots. Well, it says most of them graduates from its own academy and paying them little and working them hard. 
stop right there. You know what? When you get into any industry, you're not going to get stellar pay and you're going to have to work hard. What's wrong with hard work? Anyway, I said Lion Air gave him some simulator time in a uniform, put him into the co-pilot seat of a 737, and then made him captor sooner than a more conventional airline would have. That has more to do, ladies and gentlemen, with unions in the U.S. and Europe than it does having to do with qualifications, but I digress again. The captain had about 6,000 hours of flight time. So, you know, 6,000 hours of flight time, not too bad. The experience of airline pilots, though, 6,000 hours of flight time for an airline pilot versus 6,000 hours of flight time for somebody that flies general aviation airplanes, big, big difference. His co-pilot was 10 years his elder and had similar flight experience, but he had 900 hours of flight time when he was hired by Lion Air. And here he goes. His experience with flying was scripted, bounded by checklists and cockpit mandates, and dependent on autopilots. Well, that's aviation in a lot of ways. He had some rote knowledge of cockpit procedures as handed down from the big manufacturers, but he was weak in an essential quality known as airmanship. Sadly, the captain turned out to be weak in it too. So what's airmanship? Well, the author of this article goes on here and it says, the best pilots do not sit in cockpits so much as they strap them on. The United States Navy manages to instill this sense in its fledgling fighter pilots by ramming them through rigorous classroom instruction and requiring them to fly. <gasps> At bank angles without limits, including upside down, the same cannot be expected of airline pilots who never fly solo, whose entire experience consists of catering to passengers who flinch in mild turbulence. It goes on and on. So it says this, the problem exists for many American and European pilots too. Boy, it does. Make no mistake. Anyway, so these guys depart Jakarta, VFR, meaning you can look out the window and fly. Good weather. The first hint of trouble came about a minute later after the controller cleared the flight to climb to 27,000 feet. The co-pilot asked to confirm their current altitude. 25 seconds later, the crew, the co-pilot, asked for a clearance to a holding point where the aircraft could linger in the sky. I don't know whose wording this is. But then the co-pilot first said the words flight control problem. He did not declare an emergency. Two and a half minutes after takeoff, as the aircraft climbed through only 2,000 feet, the aircraft went into a dive and then rounded out at 1,400 feet or so. And right there, we're thinking, right, runaway trim. And that's what we thought. So what is trim on an aircraft? Let me see if I can explain this real quick. Trim on an airplane just takes away the control pressure. So it's just like a boat or anything else. If you want to move the aircraft and there's trim for the elevator, the rudder, and the ailerons, it's all the flight controls of the aircraft. It allows you to pitch. In this case, this was elevator trim. So pitch, and then the trim removes the pressure. It's an oversimplification. I get it. However, any pilot that flies an aircraft understands how to disconnect the pitch trim, which is what was going on here. As a matter of fact, the Boeing... Has, um, the autopilot will trim the aircraft. You can trim the aircraft with a thumb switch on the yoke. And then you can also turn off the electric trim altogether and operate the trim manually. None of that was done here. And the big thing with the 737 is there is two really big switches by the thrust levers. I'll mention this again. 
that you can just turn off. I'll bring this up in a second. Lion Air 610 climbed to 5,000 feet and stayed there for six more minutes. Then the captain wanted to return to the airport. Uh, the first officer asked the controller for the aircraft speed across the ground. The reason why is the idiots in the cockpit never pulled the power back. They were a takeoff power level flight at 322 knots. The max speed on that airplane at that altitude is 340 knots, and they were flying too damned fast. So here we go. Screw up after screw up. I'll be right back. First segment is gone. Dave Costa, Renegade Aviator. Stay right there. Boeing 737 MAX. Proof the pilots can save the day. Here's a quick bit of an interview with pilot Sully Sullenberger remembering the miracle in the Hudson. Credit the people now. January 15, 2009 was like 10,000 other days until 100 seconds after takeoff, we encountered a large flock of Canada geese. I saw them about two or three seconds before we hit them, but at that point we were traveling over 300 feet per second. They filled the windscreen like a Hitchcock film, and then I could feel the thumps and thuds as we struck them across the whole leading edges of the wings and into both engines. Uh, we hear a loud bang. We have no idea really what it was. Afterwards, I find out that people behind saw flame from the engine, because I, I think we hit geese is what I was told. Within seconds the engines began to fail. I, I felt terrible vibrations and heard terrible noises I'd never heard before in an airliner. Did you hear Did you any explosion on your yeah. on the plane? Yeah. Hey, it's Juliet. explosion and our plane, yeah, our plane dropped. And it smelled and you can smell it. Fire. And there was a fire. fire behind us. Both engines at once. It felt as if the forward momentum of the airplane nearly stopped in midair. I took control of the airplane. We began to make our decisions about where to divert. I knew there were only three options, only two runways that might be reachable. It turned out with reaction time they were not, and that left the third option. The only other place in the entire New York metropolitan area, one of the most densely developed and populated areas on the planet that we could land an airliner that was long enough, wide enough, smooth enough even to attempt it was the Hudson River. Wait a second, did you miss an episode of my show? Well, we have your six, aviation term there. We have your back. Search the Renegade Aviator radio show on that internet thing, and you'll find all kinds of places where you can hear me. Technology, an amazing thing. AV, the number eight R, iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeart, Stitcher, Google Play. You can take me with you. David Costa, Renegade Aviator. See ya. of the Renegade Aviator Radio Show. 
David Costa. All right, Dave Costa, segment two, Renegade Aviator Radio Show, talking about what really brought down the Boeing 737 MAX from the New York Times. This is not my article, and I'm not here to make a whole bunch of comments on the article itself, but it took 21 pages for me to print this stupid thing out. I'm trying to cut this down to an hour. I may not make it. Wish me luck, man, because uh, we're rocking and rolling here. So anyway, at 11 minutes into the flight, basically, the captain gets on the radio for the first time. He didn't know their altitude, he told the controller, because all the altitude indicators were showing different values. Basically, here's what was going on. He was getting erroneous indications on his side. He was getting a shaker. He was getting a stall warning horn, basically. But the co-pilot's information was fine. They never pulled the power back. Now they're exceeding the max speed of the aircraft. Long story short, 12 minutes into the flight, Lion Air 610 disappears off radar and smashes into the ground. So the article goes on here and talks about that airline crashes are rare, and they are. And rarer still is an airline crash or an airplane crash that'll ground an entire fleet of aircraft. So we don't have a lot of tolerance anymore for mistakes in aviation, especially aviation outside of the U.S. You want to talk about some unsafe operations. We'll go into that a little bit later. But um, after both accidents, because there were two accidents here, you guys all read the news. After both accidents, the flight data recordings indicated that the immediate culprit was a sensor failure tied to a new and obscure control function that was unique to the 737 MAX, and it was called the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, MCAS. The system automatically applies double-speed impulses and nose-down trim, but only under circumstances so narrow that Boeing figured no regular airline pilot would ever experience its activation unless a sensor fails. Boeing believed the system to be so innocuous that even if it did malfunction, the company did not inform pilots of its existence or include a description of it in the airplane's flight manuals. And sure, that's strange. But there's a whole lot of stuff going on in airplanes today that is not shown to pilots, and we'll get into that a little bit later. The company seemed hesitant, it says, to point its finger at its prickly customer, Lion Air, because Lion Air had a bunch of orders of the 737 MAX, and I don't know if that's the case or not. Okay, so Boeing had a dilemma, right? Familiar to all manufacturers after major accidents, which is usually not an aircraft problem, but a pilot problem. Boeing had reticence, and they allowed a narrative to emerge that the company had developed the system to elude regulators, and that it was all about shortcuts and greed, and that it had cynically gambled with the lives of the flying public. Do you really think Boeing would do that? Come on, ladies and gentlemen. And that the Lion Air pilots were overwhelmed by the failures of a hidden system that they could not reasonably have been expected to resist and that the design of MCAS was unquestionably the cause of the accident. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. We're not making a blanket defense of Boeing here, but, you know, the designers were aware of timetables, competitive pressures, and the mistakes they made were probably honest or stupid or maybe careless, but not as a result of intentional sacrifice of safety for gain. I don't buy that. Uh, the paradox, as the author says here, the paradox is that the failures of the 737 MAX were really the product of an incredible success. 
a decades-long transformation of the whole business of flying in which aircraft have become so automated and accidents so rare that cheap air travel boom was able to take root all over the world. Along the way, this system never managed to fully account for the unexpected, for the moment when technology fails and humans, a growing population of more than 300,000 airline pilots of variable and largely unpredictable skills, are required to intervene. In the drama of the 737 MAX, it was the decisions made by four of those pilots more than the failure of a single obscure component that led to 346 deaths and the worldwide grounding of an entire fleet. Now, as we come into this next break, it's going to be tight here. If you were to choose a location in the developing world in which to witness the challenges facing airline safety, the obfuscation of regulations, and in many places their creeping irrelevance to operations, corruption of government inspectors, corruption of political leaders in the press, the pressure on mechanics, dispatchers, flight crews to keep unsafe airplanes in the air, the discouragement, fatigue, and low wages of many airline employees, the willingness of bankers and insurers, all this stuff, you'd be hard-pressed to find two worst locations. This is where it was going to happen, right? Two S, I guess we've heard this before, S-hall areas, Indonesia and Africa. That's why these aircraft crash. I'll be right back after the break. David Costa, Renegade Aviator, more to come on why the 737 MAX got grounded, an article in the New York Times. Stay tuned. Call my office, 888-366-5256. David Costa, the Renegade Aviator. We said, oh my God, this guy is falling the river. And all of a sudden, we at 1,000 feet, 500 feet. And we were descending, if you were in a hotel elevator, equivalent to two floors per second. A couple yeah. minutes later, the captain came on and said, we're going to dump this plane, brace for impact, and probably brace pretty hard. And um, that's what we did. I made my one announcement in the cabin about 90 seconds before landing. So I said, this is the captain, brace for impact. So almost immediately, even through the hardened cockpit door, after I made my announcement, I could hear the two flight attendants in front, Donna and Sheila, and I'm sure Doreen in the back was doing the same thing, shouting their commands in unison. Brace, brace, heads down, stay down. And I knew then that we were literally on the same page. It would appear that the pilot did a masterful job of landing the plane in the river and then making sure that everybody got out. If I misjudged this height even by a fraction of a second, if I did it too soon, we'd get too slow and, and drop in. If I did it too late, we would hit nose first going down too far. So in the last four seconds of the flight, Starting at about 100 feet above the river, I began to pull the side stick back to raise the nose, pull it back, further back, further back, until it was fully aft and hold it full aft to keep the nose up as much as I could as we entered the water. And we hit hard. It was a hard landing. We were hitting that Hudson River with full impact and it went boom. And then we stopped. Just as we stopped in the water, right before I unstrapped and opened the cockpit door to shout the word evacuate into the cabin, our first officer, Jeff, and I turned to each other in the cockpit at the same time in the same words said, well, that wasn't as bad as I thought. The New York Waterway ferry operators saw us from their New Jersey terminal. They radioed their vessels to head toward us without awaiting any official notification. 
and the first New York Waterway Ferry was alongside us less than four minutes after we stopped in the river. Hey, David Costa, the Renegade Aviator, want a free Team Decal? All you have to do is call my office, 888-366-5256, and leave your name and mailing address, 888-366-5256. We will send you a free Renegade Aviator Team Decal. Be the envy of your friends and family, 888-366-5256. It's my way to say thank you, and I'm grateful for you being a fan. Renegade Aviator. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away All right, David Costa, the Renegade Aviator, segment three Couple more segments to go and I want you to find this article. It was from uh, September the 18th. This is, I'm giving credit to the author here, whose name I can't pronounce. However, go to the New York Times, what really brought down the Boeing 737 MAX. Here's my office number again, 888-366-5256. If you're a pilot and you want some coaching, aviator coaching, I call it black belt aviator, Call my office, 888-366-5256. I want to go into something on here. There's 21 pages. I'm on page five. So there's no way I'm going to get through this whole article here. So I hope I'm making sense to my fans and my audience. There's a paragraph here that I want to read. The twist is that Kirana is one of these owners of the airline, could have built his airline on the Airbus 320, an airplane that is less challenging to fly but is instead close the equivalent of the Boeing 737, which counts on pilots as the last resort if something mechanical or otherwise goes wrong. Holy crap! It's always the pilot that has to be relied upon. Anyway, that was not in the article. <laughs> I continue. I've been unable to speak about Kirana despite multiple attempts to reach him, so I do not know if he cares about these distinctions. For sure, though, he cares that once an airline makes a choice between Airbus and Boeing, changing manufacturers is expensive to do. Sure it is. And he goes on to talk about this, and they talk about how Lion Air bought a bunch of Boeing stuff and how they're basically now in bed with Boeing. All right, so basically what the author is saying here is that there's been a paradigm change. We had this in the medical world when I was working in the medical industry, is that what he's alluding to right now is since the Airbus is so automated and does so many things for the pilots, that somehow Boeing has got to be a more automated aircraft. So at first, we're here pointing at this MCAS system, this automated thing in the background that's supposed to alleviate these poor pilots from being confused when they shouldn't have been in the cockpit in the first place. 
But no, no, now we're saying is that the standard, the industry standard is going towards more automation. Ladies and gentlemen, those people that I talked to that says that we're not going to see airplanes fly themselves more and more, I tell you, it's coming, ladies and gentlemen. It is coming. You're going to see eventually a single pilot in the front of an airliner. We see them in corporate jets now. I happen to fly some of these airplanes, single pilot, and they go, oh, well, it's an airliner. It's much more difficult. BS. Airliners are a lot of times easier to fly, but we're seeing that automation is now going to be the requirement. So you're going to find in the future, mark my words, a single pilot and a ground controller on the ground that can take control of the aircraft and can fly the aircraft should that pilot be incapacitated. I'm coming up to another break. I got a couple of segments left. I want to go through basically what they're saying is that the poor pilots are undertrained, which they probably are that they're very rote in their behavior, which they probably are, and that basically this is happening in crappy third-world countries, which they are. However, the cadre of pilots that we have today, they better up their game because I'm seeing that in the U.S. and Europe as well. This is David Costa. I am the Renegade Aviator. I will be right back. 888-366-5256. He walked the plane twice after everybody else was off and tried to verify that there was nobody else on board and assures us there were not. I knew that there were 155 people, total passengers and crew, I had, I had to account for. So my, just by landing, my job was by no means over. I was responsible for everyone until everyone was safe and accounted for. If you want to talk to a hero, get a hold of him, because that's the hero in this whole deal. You know what? I, I, we, we have a second chance in life. This yeah. pilot, and, 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 and if this guy doesn't get the recognition yeah, he needs, is the reason my daughter, my two-and-a-half-year-old, has a dad. And my wife still has a husband. As soon as we landed, I knew this was going to be a life-changing event. This is one of those events that divides one's life into before and after. I knew when I married Sully, the one thing for sure was that he was the most honorable man I knew. My family knows that they could have lost me that day. And that's true for all the families involved. I knew what the outcome would be that day because I knew my husband. When we weren't lost, when all of us were saved, then of course it was a chance to, to try to do things differently. Once I get you up there where the air is rarefied We'll just glide You know, flying can sometimes be upsetting. Sometimes you have a bad attitude. Don't let this happen to you. Renegade jets can help you recover from an upset. Pilots today simply do not practice the skills required to control the aircraft in all attitudes and within the entire flight envelope. If you're a pilot and want jet upset training in real jet airplanes, call 888-366-5256.
Here he is, the host of the Renegade Aviator Radio Show, David Costa. All right, ladies and gentlemen, David Costa, Renegade Aviator, segment four. You know, again, as I said before, this article, what really brought down the Boeing 737 MAX in the New York Times. It's a good article. It's 21 pages. I am really just trying to hit the high points here, and I'm trying to focus for at least my part and the Renegade Aviator Radio Show's perspective is pilot operations, pilot actions. That's what I do in litigation. That's what I do when I consult with attorneys and with insurance companies. I deal with pilot actions. So I've been trying to keep my comments to those actions as much as I can and keep out of the politics and the other problems. However, you can call my office, 888-366-5256. You can get a hold of me anytime. I love to talk to pilots about stuff like this, and we are doing coaching. As I mentioned before, we do coaching and training of what I call black belt aviators, people that are ready to step up their game and notch or two. So let me just continue with this article here. I'm not going to get through the whole thing, but here's a quote out of the article, what really brought down the Boeing 737 MAX in the New York Times, speaking about Adam Air. Dave Carbaugh, former Boeing test pilot and one of the world's top aviators. Wait a second. Okay, one of the world's top aviators. They didn't mention me, the renegade aviator. Anyway, he trained pilots throughout Asia. He told the author, quote, They kept dispatching a faulty aircraft. Eventually, they ran into a crew that couldn't handle it. It happened on New Year's Day in 2007 while flying through an area of bad weather at 35,000 feet, the crew noticed discrepancies between the navigational systems. While fiddling with the solution, they switched off the autopilot unintentionally and drifted into a bank that turned into an uncontrolled spiral dive, during which the descent rate exceeded 50,000 feet per minute and the airplane approached the speed of sound before the captain pulled the wings off in flight. All 102 occupants died in terror. All right, so it talks about, you know, how the U.S. then precluded these airlines from flying in U.S. airspace and all that. But I want to go through this article again and go down to where it says this. Boeing knew it had a problem. A widespread culture of corruption lay at the core. But that was beyond anyone's ability to reform. Instead, and this is my term, to Boeing's credit, they decided to intervene at its own expense to raise standards at Lion Air and to try to reduce its contributions to the accident rate. No manufacturer wants their name associated with a crash. Boeing and Airbus had taken larger actions before. Foremost were their epic interventions in China that gathered speed in the late 1980s and endured for years. At the start, listen to this. Civil aviation in China was a mess with one of the highest accident rates in the world. The article continues, Dave Carball, the former Boeing test pilot, spent his first 10 years with the company traveling the globe to teach customers how to fly its airplanes. He mentioned a challenge of training pilots in Asia. Those were the rote pilots, he said. The guys standing up in the back of the sim. They saw a runaway trim. They saw where and how it was handled in the curriculum, always on sim ride number three. And so on their sim ride number three, they handled it correctly because they knew exactly when it was coming and what was going to happen. 
But did they get exposed to this anywhere else, or did they discuss the issues involved? No, it was just a rote exercise. This is step 25 of learning to fly a 737, period. I asked about China specifically. This is the author asking. He said the Chinese, they were probably the worst. He spent every other month in China for years. He said they saw flying from Beijing to Tianjin as 1,352 steps to do. Yet if they flew from Beijing to Guangzhou, it was 1,550 steps. And they didn't connect the two. It would get so rote that they just wouldn't deviate. I remember flying with a captain who would never divert no matter how many problems I gave him. When I asked him how come, he said, because the checklist doesn't say to divert. All right, finally, the author finishes up this way. It was perhaps inevitable that the relationship between Boeing and Lion Air would prove fractious. Boeing became the world's preeminent commercial airplane manufacturer in part because it developed a coherent design philosophy that relied on pilots' airmanship as the last line of defense. It made sense in an era when airplanes were vulnerable to weather and prone to failures and pilots intervened regularly. These are the author's words, not mine, to keep airplanes from crashing. <laughs> But by the 1980s, however, the situation had evolved. It had become apparent that because of engineering improvements, very few accidents were caused by airplanes anymore, and almost all resulted from pilot error. It's still the case today. Let me finish up. In the face of these changes, Boeing clung resolutely to its pilot-centric design. But in France, the relative newcomers in the EU, called Airbus, were not nearly as shy. Led by an outspoken former military test pilot turned chief engineer, Airbus decided to take on Boeing by creating a robotic new airplane that would address the accelerating decline in airmanship and require minimal piloting skills, largely by using digital flight controls to reduce pilot workload, iron out undesirable handling characteristics, and build in pilot-proof protections against errors like aerodynamic stalls, excessive banks, and spiral dives. The idea was that it would no longer be necessary to protect the public from airplanes if Airbus could get airplanes to protect themselves from pilots. Holy cow. You want diversity out there. Airlines are talking about this. There's a pilot shortage. Damn it, we want excellence. And that's what a pilot, that's what an aviator is there for. This is David Costa. I am the Renegade Aviator. We'll be right back. One more segment. I hope I'm doing this justice. This is Dave Costa, the Renegade Aviator, and I want to put a plug out for thousands of the local small airports all over this country. Chances are, wherever you live, there is a great airport right nearby. 
Go visit them and tell them that David Costa, the renegade aviator, sent you. These airports provide real value to local communities, and you will be amazed at who you will meet and what you will find there. So Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, final segment, man. I will never do this again. Never try to get through a 21-page article in a one-hour show. It is impossible. I skipped a lot. I didn't get into the accident, the second accident, the Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, 737 MAX bound for Nairobi, 157 on board, hit the ground in a screaming dive. The aircraft was captained by a 29-year-old pilot with 8,100 hours of flight time, and his co-pilot was 25 years old, who had about 207 hours of flight time. Here's the key. Both men were aware of the Lion Air tragedy. They had been briefed on the MCAS system. They knew the basics, that it provided a repetitive 10-second burst of nose-down trim, that it could be held at bay through vigorous use of the control yoke thumb switches to counter trim, and that it would not activate if the flaps were down or the autopilot was on, and that it could be deactivated by shutting off the electric trim through the use of the now famous cutout switches on the center pedestal, and that afterwards the airplane could be trimmed using manual trim. So they knew what to do, but they didn't do it. They were not aviators. As a matter of fact, in this accident, the FO finally pulled his head out of his rear end and started yelling, stab, trim, cut out, stab, trim, cut out, and the captain ignored it. In the end, the article says this, the crew was the deciding factor here, not the MCAS, not the MAX. Furthermore, it's certain that thousands of similar crews are at work around the world, enduring as rote pilots and apparently safe, but only so long as pristine conditions are routine. Airbus has gone further than Boeing in acknowledging this reality with its robotic designs, though thereby unintentionally steepening the very decline it has tried to address. So in the couple of seconds I got remaining, do not be a sissy pilot. No employer can force you to fly a defective aircraft. Nobody can pressure you. You don't need a union for that. Weather can be avoided. Flights can be delayed. Training and competence is your responsibility and yours alone. No union will save your ass when you're up in the air with your passengers. So suck it up, buttercups. Some may not be cut out to be an aviator. Fortunately for the subpar, you won't have to be one anymore. Automation will support you, replace you. Three cheers for aviators. Boo to diversity. Let's start talking about excellence in aviation. This is Dave Costa. I am the renegade aviator. See ya. So peace to